difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Tasha Robinson. And via Skype, we have... Keith Phipps. And Genevieve Kosky. In our last episode, we revisited the controversy of Jane Campion's 1993 <laughs> art house hit, The Piano. Boo. That's not good? That's good. Uh, today, we're talking about another torrid affair with Portrait of a Lady on Fire, the new film by French director Celine Sciamma. Siyama's previous films, Water Lilies, Tomboy, and Girlhood, have all been coming-of-age dramas about adolescents with a fluid gender and sexual identity. With Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Siyama is dealing with grown-ups, but she retains an interest in same-sex relationships and characters with the courage to defy social norms. Naomi Merlant stars as Marianne, a late 18th-century painter who's brought to an isolated island off the coast of France to paint a wedding portrait. The tricky part of her assignment is that Heloise, the bride-to-be, played by Adele Hainel, has refused to pose for a portrait. So Marianne sets about painting Heloise in secret. But in order to get the details right, she spends a lot of time observing her and talking to her, and the two develop a natural friendship. When Heloise's mother leaves for Italy, home to the nobleman her daughter is arranged to marry, the two women are left almost entirely alone, with only Sophie, a maid, to tend to them. In those few days they have together... Marianne and Heloise fall for each other, but they don't have much time for love until reality intrudes again. Ça fait des années que je rêve de faire ça. Mourir. Courir. Vous allez devoir la peindre sans qu'elle sache. Elle pense que vous êtes une compagne de promenade pour quelque chose. Que savez-vous de mon futur mariage Rien. C'est tout ce que j'en sais aussi. Quand allez-vous vous marier Je ne sais pas si je vais me marier. C'est parce que vous pouvez choisir que vous ne me comprenez pas. Je vous comprends. So, Portrait of Lady on Fire. Uh, what did uh, What did everyone think? I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> me too. Yeah. Tasha's giving me a look. This, this is, it seems like dissent is com- is uh, is coming. Not strong dissent. <laughs> I mean, it's it's very pretty and it's very heartfelt. It left me a little cold. I've been trying to sort of think through why that is. And I, I think fundamentally for me, it's just a feeling of never quite feeling that Heloise came into focus as a character. I feel like huh. we get a bunch of interesting little touches, like the way once her mother is gone, she works in the kitchen, like she helps cook and and serve like she's not standing on ceremony as like the lady of the house and expecting to be catered to and there's that moment when she first goes running for the cliffside and you think that she might just go over the cliff and she just says like she's she's dreamed of running i wanted more of that uh, to not to put too too fine a point on it more of that fire throughout the film i just found her so passive and distant and remote so much of the time in a way that i found maybe a little unsatisfying in a story that's so much about passion. I think you're mistaking um, anger for, for remoteness. I mean, to me, this character is, is just from the first time we see her and until, until the last, it's just kind of driven by kind of rage and resentment at just the circumstances of being a woman at the, in this time period. And, and I think 
that she's only really supposed to come alive as a character for this very short period of time. Like it's a, it's a literal, well, not literal, but it, it's a, it's an actual like spark of personality. You know, it exists in this short window when she and Marianne are together and open about their feelings for each other. And then it goes away again when she's shipped off at the end. And that, that ending is, is so heartbreaking on, on several levels because of that. But I mean, I think, you know, I feel like this is maybe the strongest connection to the piano and, and what's at the, the heart of this pairing is that like, it's about characters who are constrained by society and find a brief window of opportunity or a, a small way to express themselves within those constraints. So I think like knowing too much about Eloise as a character in the short period of time that we are experiencing her story would take away from the impact of, of it for me. I don't know. I mean, we see Ada's stubbornness just in every moment on her face. Like from that first moment when she she wants the natives to move all of her stuff like where she wants it to go when she wants the piano to be brought to her home and she can't have that like we see this intensity of character in her and it may not have much outlet it may not have much release but it's just so clear i just found heloise like so often there is the scene by the beach where her dress catches on fire and she just continues to walk and she actually sort of glances down at it and sees it and doesn't do anything about it it doesn't seem to be that she hasn't noticed it it's that she's not acting on it for some reason and I felt that kind of strange passivity throughout the film. Like maybe she is looking down at her dress and thinking like I am in a rage about my place in society and I will let myself burn to death before I will go on to the fate that has been given me. But you don't feel that in the expression on her face. She just, mm. she she seems so often barely there. Like she's just going along with whatever Marianne and Sophie have to say. But, but I, she isn't though the sense that she has, and that explains Marianne's presence there. She won't pose for a portrait. I mean, that is her one little stubborn act of rebellion that she's done on this this island and that's what kind of makes the film the film i don't know it's uh it, uh, it all made a whole uh, everything it made emotional sense to me in the in this movie i, I really did love it and, I, and one of the things i really liked about it too was this setting of like of where you start with these characters who really are in a box Halloween especially cannot do anything to is taken out of the it's out of the convent and now forced into this marriage that she doesn't want to go into and, and has no choices at all. And then once her mother leaves the island, they can completely rewrite the rules of how to live in that space. It is so exciting, right? I mean, I'm just like of having to live under these very repressive social norms and then having that completely gone to where anything goes. And the feeling of that is so exhilarating for the time that, that it's there. I mean, you can almost pair this movie with something like Before Sunrise or something where it's just like you got this little f period of time and there's a decision that's made very naturally by both of these characters that they're just going to go for it. You know, that they're not going to hold anything back, that they're not going to anticipate you know, the inevitability of this end too much and then they're, they're going to give each give themselves over to each other and I, I, there's something beautiful in that in my opinion yeah and i wouldn't call heloise like passive i think she's a quiet character but i think there's a smolder to her <laughs> to her silence i think that kind of ignites like like you say scott once once they are alone but also like i think Heloise's arc in this movie is from object to subject. So much of this movie is about gaze and the the sort of transmission of the gaze between the artist and the subject. 
probably my favorite scene, the one that like kind of made me wipe the sweat off of my brow is when uh, Heloise kind of points out to Marianne, like, I'm looking at you, I'm seeing you too. It's like that moment that kind of cracks this this wall between them, where up until now, Heloise has been something that Marianne is studying, and sort of an enigma that she is trying to create a painting of, and what results from that is passive. It is the kind of the vision of Heloise that, that I think you are getting throughout the film, Tasha. But as it progresses, and Heloise just becomes an actual person, both in Marianne's eyes and to my mind, in our eyes, and that's reflected in the painting that, that comes through. It's, you know, she's not a still life. I think there are some interesting choices being made in some of the things that Heloise refuses to react to. Like the whole plot arc where Sophie needs to, like, abort this fetus that's growing inside her. And Heloise has no commentary on any of it. Like, really, neither of them do. There's never a question of well, should you keep the child or do you want the child or like, is it a child? Like there's, there's no discussion of it. It's taken as a matter of course that they're going to like go through all of these actions and they help Sophie out with it in just a very like matter of fact sort of way. And you could sort of see maybe Marianne as like a young independent woman who may have gotten herself in a similar situation at some point going along with this. But again, it's interesting that Heloise doesn't really express an opinion, doesn't ask any questions. Like in a lot of different kinds of stories, this would be a way to express the author's opinion or to express like something going on in society. And there would be little speeches made about how children like limit your choices or ruin your body or like whatever, whatever's going through Sophie mind. But in this case, everybody's so calmly matter of fact about it. And the only hint we get that this is a point of interest to Heloise is after it's over when she pushes Marianne to paint it, like to to sort of recreate the situation and, and create some sort of a record of it. Like she's clearly feeling something there, something that motivates her to want to make sure this moment is not forgotten. But again, I just found her very opaque. I see that she's feeling something in all this that she's kind of kept concealed from us. And I see that she is acting on those emotions and using her choices to affect other people. But I just, I still, I don't really know what's going through her head or through her emotions during any of this. Yeah, I guess I don't know that I need to know. Again, it goes back to the sort of temporary nature of, of this relationship, you know, like they don't know each other that well, but there's still this attraction sort of developing on a, I don't want to say surface level, but just this very sort of introductory level that they're never really able to get past because this this is such a short window that their relationship is existing in. So it's it never really is able to progress beyond this infatuation stage. And Heloise does kind of remain an enigma in some ways to Marianne and therefore to us. It's another one of those things going back to the piano for me where it's like this film makes emotional sense and it's all in the filmmaking. I think that the shot of Heloise when they're outside and their faces are covered up and you just see her eyes, that's the shot we're going to see forever. Like that's like such an extraordinary movie moment and it's just you can compile those sorts of things and make relationships make sense in such a economic and visual way and I and so I felt like we got the beats that the film needed to hit you know we needed to feel you know that sense of betrayal that Marianne is having to go about painting this portrait the way she paints it and then of course we feel of course the power of the decision that she makes that this 
painting is not good enough, you know, quote unquote, not good enough. And she wipes it out in the effect that must have on Heloise that she's taken this perfectly fine portrait that she's done her job and she's decided to throw that in the garbage and we feel that too and then of course and we feel the 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 attraction that they have for each other that the fact that they're seeing each other observing each other know how the other breathes and what certain non-verbal tics that they have what they mean what they're trying to what what they're saying about each other i mean it all makes sense and is also beautiful and is also like intuitive and i mean it's what great filmmaking is and uh there's a whole lot of it in this movie which i do like quite a bit i just think that marianne is such an interesting character i mean she's she like she's introduced to us in a way that just kind of like speaks to her independence and ferocity when she loses her canvases overboard she doesn't call for one of the men on board to like try to fetch it in with the oar or to, to go after it she jumps in after it herself when she's dumped on the seaside with her gear, much like Ada is in the piano, she picks it up and carries it herself. And she, she climbs up this hill uh, with the, this huge bag and this huge box on her back. And there's just sort of a sense of this isn't what I'm expecting from something set in this time period from a woman. Like she tells us the story of how she studies in secret and paints in secret because women aren't allowed to know about male anatomy. So they're held back from creating anything, you know, the, the great subjects, the, the classic material, all of these little bits and pieces that we get of her life and her behavior. She just seems so much more interesting to me than Heloise. Well, we'll also keep in mind that up until this point, uh, Heloise has been in a convent, you know, and that was sort of, as I understand it, the fate of the of the second daughter in, in this time and in, in this place in society. Like, you know, up until her, her sister died, she was prepared for a life of solitude and, and silence in, in the convent. And now that she is no longer there, I think we are sort of seeing Heloise come alive in this new phase of her life. And again, you get into the spark fire imagery, you know, that is very uh, prevalent there, I think, in that aspect of her character. So I don't disagree. I, I don't think Heloise is as interesting of a person or who is, or has led as interesting a life at this point as, as Marianne. And I guess you could make the argument of, well, so then what does Marianne see in, see in her? But I think the answer to that question comes through in what Scott is talking about. It's the, sort of the emotional logic of the film more than the on paper, what does this person have to offer? Okay, so speaking of the emotional logic of the film, maybe you guys can explain to me what was going on in the in the beach party scene. Because I mm-hmm. love that style of music so much. And I thought that the song was beautiful. And the idea of these women all coming together in the dark, kind of like wordlessly creating this beautiful musical thing was very moving. And the sequence we get out of it with Heloise's dress catching on fire and her kind of being almost indifferent to it for a moment is a very beautiful image. But at the back of my head, I was like, but they're on a remote island in the middle of nowhere. Like, where did these 20 women suddenly come from, from a beach party? Like, who are they? Were they were they sent? Did they just see the lights of the island and decide to park there on the way they're a, a journey to someplace else? Like, are these women from the coven? Like, what, what are we seeing? 
I don't think the manor house is the whole of the island, though. It's a settlement. We only see this house, mm-hmm. but there are other people there. Was my sense of, but, but I think it also kind of because there's also the midwife that the Sophie goes to for for the abortion, or and whoever got Sophie pregnant yeah. is, on, is there too, you know, presumably. Yeah. As for how I read that sequence, Tasha, like I think. You know, that, as I recall, that happens shortly after the Comtesse leaves the island. And it sort of feels like that scene is sort of the both the movie and the characters getting in tune with a more sort of primal strain of femininity than they ever have access to within the structures of the society that that does exist on this island and that the Comtesse kind of represents, you know, and, and we don't really see any men in this movie outside of, I think, the, the very first and, and maybe last scenes. Mm-hmm. So I feel like the beach party is sort of transitioning this setting into a more purely feminine space that allows Marianne and Heloise to transition their relationship into something else that can only really exist in this new space. And I think so much of the of the movie is also about the lives of women that exist away from men, as you say, but also went unrecorded. I think that's what's so important about that scene where, mm-hmm. where she's drawing the abortion. I think that's why she did not want the titular portrait of a lady on fire exhibited to her students, because that was outside the realm of what was a proper subject for a painter to do at that time. And I, I think that's, uh, I mean, of course, the, the love affair itself is outside the realm and something that was not talked about or written about or, or written down, just like the abortion wasn't written down or recorded. But but we know it happened. And I think that's um, it's striking the way the movie explores that and recreates it. And it is just kind of a fantasy in a way of like of a place where these rules don't apply. And, and I mean, something even something like the abortion and, and, you know, the bonfire scene, it's all everything is entered into in such a natural and frictionless way because this is an this is an island of women and there's no and no one is telling them what to do and so we get to kind of experience for this little bit of time what that actually is like and how characters might uh, be behave and and find a little bit of happiness um under those conditions but we'll hit more on this fantasy island theme uh after the <laughs> after the break when we talk about the connections between the piano and portrait of a lady on fire it's time for connections when we bring these two films together talk about all the things they have in common and boy i think they have a lot in common <laughs> i'm pretty, really I'm pretty <laughs> i was super excited when i saw i think we definitely wanted to do portrait of a lady on fire but none of us had seen it we just heard it was a great thing and the piano was among uh the movies that people suggested to us and when i watched portrait of a lady on fire i was like oh yeah <laughs> We, we really should do the piano. Um, so one of those, one of the um, you know connections here, I think, would be mystery, desire, and consent, which I guess are all entangled. I mean, these are 
both to some extent, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, arguably much more so, but they are both romances and about romantic relationships and sexual relationships. And I think in both cases, those relationships are defined by, at first, mystery. Like Both sets of romantic pairings have this element of one person being sort of unknowable to the other um, in one way or another, and then that uh, informs their desire to some extent, and then complicates the issue of of consent and how to move forward uh, with the sexual component of of their relationship. So I, I think, especially in terms of consent, is where they diverge the most. But also, it is perhaps a more interesting topic in in the piano because there is the the male female dynamic that there is not uh, in in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. But there, there is also still a certain imbalance between uh, Marianne and Heloise. The issue of consent gets gets shifted away from sex and toward the art that she's trying to create without oh, her consent. Oh, of course. Yes. Thank you, Keith. That is what I was thinking when I suggested this connection. <laughs> I knew there was something more there. So I, I think like we could have made mystery, desire, and consent all their own connections. But I think all three are so fundamentally a part of both of these relationships that it just becomes its own trifecta connection. The consent <laughs> just question just becomes so interesting in uh, Portrait of a Lady because it's not just that Marianne is creating art of Heloise without her consent. She's creating art in order to sell her to a man mm-hmm. without her consent. She's creating art with the express idea of like pleasing her mother and and taking money in exchange for becoming part of this this project to sell a young woman against her will to a man that she doesn't know and and hasn't seen and the fact that she backs out on that when she when she wipes the the oil off the painting and then that Heloise later does give her consent and it becomes kind of an erotic thing between them becomes very interesting and very much a parallel between the the question of exactly how much does Ada consent to with Baines when she agrees to the deal over the piano every time they renegotiate that every time he he asks her for something bigger, something more escalating, and she negotiates for more of the piano in response. There's a, a question, like the, the question of consent there is very complicated. She doesn't refuse. There's certainly a question of whether they, she could refuse, like he has something that she she desperately wants, but he's also not physically forcing her. In theory, he could refuse. And in theory, it becomes something of a push and pull between them. But I think in both cases, there's just sort of a a question of like ownership in, in addition to the question of power, a question of which among them owns like the the right to their own property, the right to to the thing that actually belongs to them. In Ada's case, it's the piano, which was taken away from her against her will, without her consent, without really any right to do so. And in Heloise, it's her own image, it's her own face that's being taken from her without her consent. I think too, it, you know, and this is something that's so common in in a lot of love stories that I respond to in, in, in movies uh, is I think that a lot of the tension that comes between couples like this has to do with the issue of equality of two people who may start um, the relationship, a relationship with a very unequal power balance coming to terms and finding this point at which they're at level and they both have a hold on each other. And that's when they can be completely intimate and real with each other and things, sparks tend to fly. I mean, I appreciate that both films are as explicit in 
carnal and kind of are, you know, hot as they are. I mean, mm-hmm. they're very intense films that you respond to in a real visceral way. I mean, it's um, uh, that's another thing they have in common. To st- uh, stay on the subject of, you know, their carnality or their, their eroticism, I, I do want to briefly focus on the the armpit scene in, in <laughs> Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh-huh. It's funny, first of, first of all, you know, and like there are little flashes of, of humor in this film that I um, don't want to let go un- unremarked upon. And sort of what makes it funny is because it is playing on the or it's sort of pointing out to the viewer what you are expecting to see in this moment and sort of upending your expectation while still maintaining the eroticism of the moment. It's a very playful moment that still maintains its eroticism. And to go back to the consent connection, like it's sort of another way of exploring the relationship between them and the openness that is developing between them. Like they're taking drugs together, you know, they're they're, they're getting high together, and I, I don't know precisely what uh, what they are are using the the needs to be applied topically to the armpit, but there it, it does require a certain uh, element of trust to do that with a, a partner. Yeah, I just really like that moment, and I don't think there's any sort of analogous scene in the piano that is sort of well maybe it's when she uh when ada actually finally kind of climbs into to bed with him and is sort of asserting herself a little more uh sexually and kind of exploring his his body yeah i I got the impression from the description and the look of the stuff that it was some (laughs) sort of uh, hashish treatment but i i have never before seen a drug use scene in a movie where hash was applied topically to armpit hair so I, yeah. <laughs> I was I was curious what was a wild time, what Tasha. exactly what was yeah. going on there. But I, I mean, again, it sort of speaks to some of the mystery of the film. Like if we if we don't know where all of those women suddenly came from for a, a nighttime coral idol, we don't necessarily need to know what drug it is that's absorbed through the armpit hair. I wanted to focus in on the desire idea in your mystery desire consent trifecta here. I mean, Scott was making the point that these are both like very erotic movies. But at the same time, I think it's it's very possible, according to your your personal bent, your personal feelings about eroticism and romance, to read either of them as like a very swoony and romantic love story about people finding each other against all odds in, in the midst of like these oppressive situations. Or you can read them as like almost transactional stories of people mm-hmm. turning to the one outlet they can find because they're in these situations where there's there's no one else. Mm. I think it's entirely possible to read Ada and Baines by the end of the movie as in love with each other. And I think it's equally possible to see that relationship as something that's really only beautiful because it's the relationship she chose as opposed to the relationship she was given. And in the same sort of way, Heloise turning to Marianne, like you can see as like a moment of of experiencing true love or you can see it as just turning in desperation to something that she actually gets to choose in a situation where she doesn't get to choose much i'm just i'm curious for each of the three of you i guess how much you bought into these relationships as idealized classic romances versus relationships of of convenience and the moment and of of choosing choice as opposed to like helplessly falling in love well, I mean, I think in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, there's a much more easy consent there, a much more yielding to what is, I think, pretty well established 
sparks between these two. Touch the point is is that it is under such restricted circumstances that's her only choice, though. Yeah, sure, but but I don't. I agree with you. It feels. But regardless, I, 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 yeah. I never. I guess I never really thought about it that way. Um, I mean, that's, port, a, that's an answer to my question in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Portrait of a Lady on Fire is much more purely romantic to my mind because it's not complicated by the bramble of patriarchal repression and the, the sexual blackmail and everything that is uh, wrapped up in, in Ada and Baines's uh, relationship. But I like hearing you talk about it, Tasha, I'm realizing it is it does sort of raise the question of what is informing Marianne's desire. I think I get it a lot more on Heloise's part, just because she is in this point in her life where she's on the precipice of of being sold off into marriage, essentially. And this is sort of a, a last gasp of, of finding herself or, or being herself with, with this woman. It's a little trickier where Marianne's desire comes from. And I think the answer that I read from the film is that it has to do with her art and sort of the subject of her art coming alive and what that would feel like to an artist, like to actually feel that connection to what you are studying and, and creating, I think would inflame a sort of, of passion that could very easily become sexual in the in the right context. And this is the right context. These are two films directed by women. These are two films that have a lot of eroticism, that have a lot of looking. One question I would ask is like, you know, we're so used to seeing these sorts of explicit love stories through the eyes of a male director. What's what's the difference here? What's the difference from seeing this from the perspective of through the eyes of Jane Campion and Celine Sciamma? The most obvious example of the gaze in, in the piano is is uh, Alastair staring <laughs> at his wife with another man without her knowing. I think the example of the gaze there is like, even if it's just on a visual level, taking something that doesn't belong to you and possessing it, if, if that image you know, if, if nothing else. And in Portrait of a Lady on the Fire, it's very much what we see is Marianne staring at Heloise, but to study her, to create something, and to kind of try to capture her essence in a way. And I, I don't know if that's how, you know, I, I don't want to be men look like this and men look, women look like that, but I think those are two very uh, interesting examples of Hallows uh, depicted across those two films. I think in, to one degree, like one of the more interesting things to come out of these both being di- women-directed movies is just the, the view of the films just don't seem to be that interested in the eroticism of female bodies as, as passive objects. Like when Baines pulls Ada into his bed and wants wants her to lie with him she curls up defensively like she she brings her knees up to conceal her body and there's nothing particularly like i'm i honestly i keep coming back to the titanic uh james cameron's titanic and paint me like your french girls like there's nothing like that that's just the camera lingering on a beautiful female body except during the moment where alistair is is peering through and seeing the two of them lying together and and is focusing on Ada's body. For the most part, what we see in Ada in particular is this few things more erotic in the movie than the moment where she removes her, her outer top and you just see the muscles flexing in her, her back and her arms. And you see under all of the layers of clothing that she wears, she's strong like that's there's much more focus on the muscles in her back than there is on her breasts or on her ass or anything like that. And in the same sort of way, Siyama keeps 
catching the two women like in bed together, like lying down on their backs, which is not the most flattering position for, for female breasts. When you're lying on your back, everything tends to kind of like flatten and spread. And male directors typically will give you women like standing up so their breasts hang like looking over their shoulders so you can see like as much as possible of like the the buttocks and the breasts at the same time kind of like the classic comic book uh boob boobs and ass pose and you don't get any of that here you get the idea that what's erotic is the fact that they're choosing this sexuality and these actions in bed together but they feel like they're doing it for themselves and for each other not for like a lusty camera that's like looking for a, a playboy spread moment a couple moments from each film that i want to kind of highlight in the in the context of this connection i think it's interesting and pointed that the first full frontal nudity we get in the piano is male nudity oh, <laughs> that just just feels like a purposeful inversion at that point and um it's certainly not the the last nudity we get but it is um the most i think striking for that for that reason mm-hmm. and then uh in portrait of a lady on fire there's that scene again a, a, a kind of funny but also very very sweet i think where uh marion uh, where heloise uh is lamenting that she won't have uh any image of of marianne to remember her her by so she draws a, a self portrait using a mirror propped up in a very pointed area area of the, of the of the female anatomy which again feels like a sort of literalization of the neuroticized female gaze there's also that first shot of marianne in front of the fire like after she's jumped into the sea to retrieve her canvases she shows up at the house soaking wet and these these dresses that they're wearing are very big and, and bulky and heavy and you can just feel how heavy it would be like completely sodden so she strips down to the skin to dry off and you see her silhouetted against the fire and again it is it's not the most eroticized use of, of female nudity like sitting in that kind of hunched over position like it gives her the the slightest bit of a paunch at the tummy again it, it doesn't really show her breasts in the most erotic way it's very animalistic in a way you know it's it's just about warmth and and comfort the the way that she's sitting she's not displaying herself for anybody she's sitting in a way that's comfortable for her against the fire but it's also just a reminder that under all of these layers and layers of clothing and these gigantic skirts this is what's underneath it all is like a, a physical body and it's it's kind of like an early tease an early reminder that no matter how like bulked out these these costumes get which is also something you feel a lot in uh in the piano especially when <laughs> whenever Ada's trying to cross the mud uh, mm-hmm. you just you get the sense of like you lose the body for the costume because the costume's so huge. I don't know if we're going to like go full into costumes as a connection but as you you mentioned Ada's dress and the obscuring of, of the body I just want to call it that am- amazing shot after Alistair cuts her finger off and she's kind of stumbling silently through the mud and she like sinks down and her dress just like balloons up over her it's just very like it looks like a jellyfish or something you know it's just it's a totally weird organic form that it takes on that that feels uh, completely removed from its function as a dress um the dresses in both films are so important <laughs> you know yeah. I, I mean you think about the the green dress that eloise is supposed to yeah. pose in and how weird it looks on her how uncomfortable she looks in it um and then you know of course there's a bit where she decides to bathe in the in the ocean and takes takes it off and it's a it's a much different uh feeling but uh but i have to say we have gotten well well into both of these episodes 
and somehow the name Michael Nyman has never come up, <laughs> even though even though the score for the piano is probably you know one of the most famous and memorable, and I think great scores of the '90s. So I wanted to get into the, a little bit into the music of these films, right? Uh, first of all, I just I, I wanted to get your impression about. Just starting with the piano, what do you think of that score and what do you think of the use and the importance of that score to the whole movie? I'm going to completely contradict what I said in the first episode, I guess, about how you should never show show people the art because uh, they're mm. going to judge it in different ways. Like yeah. the one exception that I can think of to that rule is this kind of like performative thing. Like I, Amadeus is still one of my all time favorite films. And it's, it's one of the few films I feel really pulls off that sensation of we're going to present you with the art and you're going to feel what we want you to feel. Mozart's pretty good, right? Pretty good. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he's okay. He's, he's done a couple of reasonably memorable ditties, but uh-huh. mostly it's just mm-hmm. in the direction and how Milos Forman like captures F. Mary Abraham's character, Salieri reacting to the music. And here, so much of it in the piano is about watching how Ada responds to the piano, how she responds to the music she's making, how she uses that music to express her anger and her frustration, her her desire to be carried away, uh, sometimes her, her playfulness, but mostly her passion. All of this passion that she doesn't express in words, uh, she expresses through the piano. And like the, the score is just really key in, <laughs> no pun intended, bringing out what she's feeling in places where she can't tell you what she's feeling. Now, I think that I I didn't notice, apart from the the beachside uh, sing-along, which, again, I absolutely loved in Portrait of a Lady, I don't feel that music quite has the same place there. But the I, I think it was one big the exception. Scene. Yeah, summer. Yeah. Vivaldi's summer. But we we get the the equivalent of it in watching Marianne's painting come together because she's mm-hmm. in the exact sure. same sort of way. She is expressing things that can't be said through her art. She's expressing how she feels about Heloise in how she paints her. Uh, and in the same sort of way, like like both of these films are fundamentally about somebody using art to express things that can't be said. Totally. I, I didn't mean to cut you off there, Tasha, because I think like thematically the, you know, the piano playing and the, the painting are very much linked on a, on a character level there. But I do want to talk specifically about the use of music in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, because there is not there there is no music other than that bonfire scene and the use of uh, Vivaldi's summer, which we hear Marianne kind of like attempting to play uh, near the beginning of the film. And then it plays a huge part in the in the final moments of the film, which, oh, man, that got me. I don't, mm. I don't know about you guys, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's like the acting moment for Adele Hanel there, that that final uh, reaction shot there. But um, in the piano, music is not ever present, but it is it very strongly asserts itself throughout the the entire film. You know, it's very much a part of the fabric of the film. And in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, it is used as these sort of exclamation points. It's used sparingly and with great purpose. Yeah, I mean, the ending of, of uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, it just, it, it kind of gets me because it's just, well, for, first of all, I mean, it's it's the whole denouement is so beautifully handled because it's like, I saw I saw her twice and you get the scene in the art gallery, which is remarkable. Page 28. I know. Oh. Mm, killer, right? And then, I'll never and then... look at page 28 of a book the same way again. <laughs> And then the scene of of her alone at this performance, and there's just it's my favorite thing in movies probably of being able to 
experience this private moment that I guess Marianne is witnessing, but you oftentimes just the, the audience is being privy to this thing that being privy to emotions that nobody else gets to see. And, and uh, my favorite, you know, I think Stella Dallas is probably like the classic example of that, but it's like a real great, it's a great, it's a beautiful thing. And, and I think it's, it's it gives this film such a punch to end it. And again, the piano I, I, is unimaginable to me. It's talented as everyone is and as beautifully photographed as it is and well thought through and, and, and complex. It's just like, you how does it, how would it work without that Michael Nyman score? I don't know. It's like, it's so important. I think of Greenaway as an 18th century filmmaker and, and Campion as a 19th century filmmaker, that, or at least the sense that, you know, one's about very much like sort of organization and uh, enlightenment principles in some ways, uh, even though he's pushing back against that. And, and the piano is such a romantic film. In, in, in the capital R romantic sense. Yeah, one of the other things these two films have in, in common is the myth and legend. I mean, you have stories within stories that sort of play out uh, in these in these films. Yeah, I just, I wanted to bring that up as a connection because it, it sort of fascinated me. Like, there are all of these tiny, interesting parallels between the film, like the fact that both of these women have a journey by sea during which they lose the focus of their art overboard. Uh, and they both end up in the water as a result, just with very, very different outcomes, very different intents. But one of the other big, like very literal parallels between them is in both cases, you have somebody telling a story and then you see the story play out in a way. You have in uh, Portrait of a Lady, it's the Orpheus and Eurydice story. In The Piano, it's, it's Blackbeard. But in both cases, it's set up in advance as a very much a like a fictional and, and classical story that's being shared among people for entertainment. And then we see it actually play out among the characters, like in a, a, a much more literal way. And I, I just I think that that's a really a common enough thing in movies, uh, sort of the idea of we all share these these stories that are their myth and folklore but then we actually see how they affect our real lives. But I, I think it's really fascinating that both of these films do it in such a literal fashion. Particularly in the piano, it seems like when the the, the vicar is practicing the effect of like the, the shadow play of here's what it looks like when Bluebeard chops your hand off with an axe. Uh, it, like you, it feels like foreshadowing, even if you don't know what's coming. Mm. It's just this moment of, of male on female violence that the woman sort of like consents to in a giggly, playful, awkward sort of way. And he delights in it. He he thinks it's hilarious that he's doing this terrible thing. And then you have so many sequences that go on throughout the, the piano with the axe, with Sam Neill carrying the axe around with the camera focusing on the axe. And then when he gets the key from Flora and he goes after his wife, the camera's mostly focused in on the axe. An awful lot of the, the sequence of him descending on Ada uh, are tight close-ups on the blade of the axe. We know what's going to happen because we've had this story told to us already. Yeah, and there's a, a similar foreshadowing in Portrait of a Lady on Fire with the whole turnaround and made the the poet's choice and, and all that. But I um, I do want to point out, I was listening to an interview with Siama on uh, CBC Radio. I'll just, for in case anyone else wants to listen to it, uh, well, you can just Google Siama CBC Radio. It's the first thing that, that pops up. But um, they were talking about that scene and sort of the you know, why choose that story. But then she kind of talked about like that scene where they're actually reading the story together. Hmm. 
and uh, Siama put it as it's sort of their Netflix and chill. And I thought I thought that was a really really funny way to put it, but also like totally like it's it's like these three women like reading and discussing the story again, totally divorced from the, you know, the strictures of male, you know, dominated society and the conversations that would would happen about it in in that context. They're able to have their own conversation and their own reactions to it, uh, divorced from that space. I thought that was a a really kind of cool uh, interpretation of, of that moment. Yeah, not to bring everything back to Tarsum's really the Fall. We really have to do that. Yeah. Though, I did just <laughs> rewatch that. We're renaming this the Fall Cast. <laughs> we, we, I'm, I'm entirely fine with the Fall Cast. I will do uh, the Fall Minute by Minute uh, podcast in a, in a heartbeat. But there's that moment uh, towards the beginning when Lee Pace's character is kind of like slowly trying to seduce the little girl into doing things for him, where he's telling her this elevated story about uh, Odysseus and his men. I think it's Odysseus and how they're in the desert and they they have no water and like a runner brings brings him a tiny bit of water that's the last of the water and he dumps it out on the the packed sand of the desert because there isn't enough for all of them so like he's not going to drink it he's not going to give the men something he doesn't doesn't have and the little girl interrupts and says well that's stupid he should have given everybody a little bit of it and i feel the same thing here the exact same emotion like when when sophie's just like that's so dumb why did he look back he shouldn't have looked back like this is such an ancient story it's it's something that we're probably all were exposed to at some point in childhood and you feel the injustice of of his choice like the foolishness of uh orpheus's choice but you don't feel it in the visceral way that she does. Like she's clearly experiencing this literary story for the first time. And she is in high dudgeon about it. Just like how, how dare this idiot do this? Like why it's, it's like watching somebody throw popcorn at their television set uh, during the red wedding and game of Thrones. Like this is popular (laughs) entertainment and it just pisses her off. And it's so cute that she's, she's pissed off on uh on Eurydice's behalf on the reader's behalf just like how dare that stupid Orpheus not to dwell on it but I I think Tasha I think you're the only person among us has actually seen the fall so it's always it's, it's, I've seen it I, I, I it's about almost it, like I a, it's almost well okay for the well then that'll spoil what I'm about to say but, but it's almost like this this movie you made up <laughs> we're just kind of like, oh, just talking about that, that, that imaginary movie again we really should pair it with something just just so we can we can have uh, uh, Tasha talk about it at length that, that, would, that would require someone making a movie anything mm. like the fall which from tasha's description sounds like a near impossibility i mean to be honest it would pair reasonably well with any movie about uh, fantabulism like any movie about escapism and storytelling and, and like the the nature of storytelling as escapism uh we'll look for opportunities but uh <laughs> it, it honestly we might not ever do it for the podcast because we try to make these movies that people can actually see and it's not Mm. streaming anywhere you have to Mm. buy it on dvd or blu-ray if you want to see it at this point and uh, i would advise people to do that because who knows when those uh, discs are going to become unavailable as well but yeah there's there's no easy way to see it and that is something we look for for these these podcasts well since we've we've departed uh from (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> from the piano and, and Portrait of a Lady on Fire and moved on to a third film. Probably a good time to say that the piano was widely available on streaming services. It's currently up on the Criterion channel along with a selection of other Jane Campion films. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is in limited release now and should roll out to major cities throughout the next few weeks. 
We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I, I admittedly haven't uh, revisited this film in the uh, super recently, but I have uh, seen it a couple of times uh, and enjoy it very much, which is Celine Siama's previous film uh, to this, 2014's Girlhood. Uh, which was her third feature and uh, is uh, one she considers part of a trilogy with her first two films, uh, Water Lilies and Tomboy. It is, like those films, uh, a coming-of-age film, um, one that's interested specifically in sort of the formation, evolution of a young woman's identity. Girlhood centers on the character Maryam, a black teenager growing up in the projects of suburban Paris, as she falls in with a much tougher and more worldly group of girls. Uh, the film's French title translates to Gang of Girls. Uh, the film has a sort of episodic structure following the exploits of this girl gang, and through those exploits, we see Miriam sort of reinvent herself over and over as she tries to both fit in and figure out who she is or, or who she'll become. And this often happens through acts of viciousness and even violence that can be startling, but also, uh, to my mind, help illustrate the sort of intoxicating effect that can form among groups of adolescent girls who are all existing in the same sort of liminal state of adulthood. But that effect is actually best illustrated in a much different sort of scene, uh, my favorite scene of the film, and a real standout where Miriam and her friends have an impromptu motel room dance party to the Rihanna song Diamonds. Uh, it's definitely the standout scene of the film and one I sometimes still watch all by itself, uh, which you can too. It's, it's on YouTube, though its full power may not come through without watching the entire film first. So I'd recommend you do so if you have not seen Girlhood. Uh, it's available on both the Criterion channel and Canopy uh, if you subscribe to those, and then easily rentable pretty much everywhere else. Yeah, I'm kind of working my way through her films for a piece that by the time this podcast drops will have been out for a while on the ringer and uh i'm a big fan um and i just i just watched for the first time water lilies her debut which is very assured and and also it's their first collaboration with adele hanel and water lilies is about a synchronized swimming team of which she is like the both the leader and also kind of like a character who has a reputation kind of a bad reputation and uh and it's about the effect that she has on uh two other uh, girls who are much more uncertain about who they are and the interesting thing about it in comparison to portrait of a lady on fire is like something that tasha mentioned which is like she is kind of a, not quite a cipher in water lilies but but almost like, like like a catalyst you know she exists as sort of as this mysterious figure who really profoundly affects these two other girls and um yeah, so it's I don't know I'm not going to blather on about it, but I think it is worthwhile and not difficult to uh, if you have the Criterion Channel, you can you know there are three you know, she's just has the three other features and there's a short out there as well uh, that that isn't on Criterion Channel that you can catch up with her work very quickly and they're thematically connected and uh, she's a major filmmaker and this is your chance so I do it. What's your favorite of the three, Scott? What's my favorite of those three? I don't know. It's hard to say. I, I really, Tomboy was the one I saw first. And so, so I have a real strong connection to it. But I think she's girl. I think they're really good. She's got, she's really good 
right away. Like like there's nothing wrong with. I mean, Water Lilies may have a couple of hiccups here and there. It's not it's not maybe not a perfect film, but it's pretty close. She knows what she's doing right right away. Uh-huh. Tomboy is the only one of those three that I ever saw, and it, yeah, I remember it reminding me quite a bit of Catherine Birat's uh, Fat Girl. Yeah, it's less confrontational by far, but you know, both of those are very much about young women, like very, very young women, mm-hmm. and their relationships to their bodies yep. and their awkwardness in the world, and how the people around them see them physically and, yeah. and respond. Water to Lilies them. Is, is the exact same thing. That's the, the, the so there is an interesting relationship. Briat, I have Briat, Catherine Briat in my notes. I don't know if it's going to be on the piece, but definitely a connection there for sure yeah Briot's so much more confrontational though I, I again with tomboy i have that that feeling of the character being maybe a little opaque and a little remote in tomboy it bothered me much less because there was just such a sense of the movie being about discovery and about yeah. experimentation but then that is something that is definitely reflected in portrait of a lady yeah Okay. So I'm going to turn that into a recommendation for all three of those films, and now throw to you, Scott. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, let's 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 stay on the Criterion Channel uh, uh, because Criterion Channel also has a big section on Jane Campion. You know, it's got her first two features: uh, a Sweetie and an Angel White Table. It's got the Portrait of a Lady. It's got Holy Smoke, uh, and it has her short films, which which really were a big deal at the time. That the films that she made in the '80s leading up to Sweetie. Uh, really sort of prime the pump because because those those films were uh, quite acclaimed um i guess two friends would be her first film that was 86 i never saw that one but in any case um the one thing i i, I was kind of inclined to revisit because its critical reputation has sort of grown over the years was in the cut uh and, and i mentioned in the cut in my keynote and uh, at the time i joined so many uh, <laughs> critics and certainly audiences who absolutely hated it and gave it an F cinema score and thinking it was not, uh, not a good film and a film that made on a plotting level was full of all of the cliches that you might expect from sort of the sexy thriller the post fatal attraction basic instinct yada 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 sexy thriller that we've been seeing for a decade and been sort of tired of has to do with uh, Meg Ryan who is um, brought in as sort of a, a, a witness of sorts to a to a a brutal murder there's some, someone's going around de- decapitating women um and the person that she's attracted to played by mark ruffalo is a detective who we are led to believe or suspect may be the killer again these are all stock things that we see in these types of movies and the the, the whole question of did he or didn't he do it that's all that's all sort of dangled in front of you until the very end which is which is kind of ridiculous but again it's one of those things you look between the notes and you kind of like try to think about what in the cut is actually trying to do and it sort of ends up being this deconstruction of the whole genre from a woman's perspective very distinctly and it's something i did not appreciate at the time and i kind of appreciate it more now i mean it's it, it is not a perfect film but it is something where you have a sense of danger and a sense through this meg ryan character of someone who is attracted to a situation that is wrong and dangerous in a lot of ways and that but that she's compelled to enter into anyway and then you think about how this character and about women in general having to uh, you know of sexual interest having to make their way into the world and the film is very interesting to me in that respect and so i think it's kind of worth a look uh, because it's it's some it's kind of one of a kind in a subgenre that needed something like this i think 
I think that film is so flawed, and yet it's so fascinating. I really don't think that critics at the time had enough of an idea of what to do with it. And I think in part, that's because film critics are so overwhelmingly male, and it's such a female-coded movie. I remember walking out of that film thinking... The fundamental idea that's going on here is this is what a standard issue, like bog standard thriller would look like if you switched the genders and didn't change any of the content. Because what's core to Ryan's character is that she's playing a woman who seeks out sex the way men seek out sex, like in in movies, at least. Certainly not wanting to make any broad real world generalizations. But there are so many tropes and archetypes that we're used to in terms of like a sexually ambitious woman in film is is either a whore or a, a slut. Like she's either selling it or she's like scratching some kind of like dirty, disgusting itch that we should judge her for. And in this case, she, she doesn't go about seeking sex like in a seductive way or in a mercenary way or like in a, a financial way. She, she just, she does it in a very like aggressive, like, like calm masculine way and everything about her character is coded as male except her actual gender and i i think it's just like a fascinating script flipped that none of the uh none of the things that i read about the movie at the time seemed to key into they just they saw the plot flaws but they mm-hmm. didn't see what what was actually going on there i will also say <laughs> guilty as charged <laughs> i apologize coming out of that movie i have never been more aware in my life that i was the only woman in a room full of male critics Mm-hmm. Uh, a fairly small screening room uh, that seats about 40 and had about 20 male critics and me in it. And then I have never been so aware of like the closeness of male bodies as I was in the <laughs> elevator full of male oh, critics no. going down <laughs> after that film. It's uh I, I feel like no matter how like textually or conceptually flawed that film might might be, if your definition of art is something that makes you feel something emotional and like reevaluate the world around you and, and like reexamine things you've taken for granted, I, I would call In the Cut a, an unqualified success. I love it. Uh, uh, Keith, what about you? You know, I haven't been watching a lot of great movies lately. I watched some bad movies, and I've, you know, for a piece I'm writing. Um, so, and I watched some TV shows. So, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, if you're like me, you don't have a lot of time for movies at the moment. Which hopefully that'll change for me soon. Hopefully it'll change for you soon. Or even if you just want to watch something, um, you're not gonna see any, anywhere else or anything like. You're probably aware of this already, but if not, go to Netflix. Look up What Did Jack Do? It is a short film by David Lynch, and we, which he speaks to a monkey. And I just want to leave it there uh, <laughs> and, and say no more about this. But uh, it is uh, 17 minutes well spent um, if you like David Lynch and or monkeys and or mysteries. Question mark, question mark, question mark. What did Jack do? And dialogue. And dialogue. Right? Really good Lots dialogue. dialogue. Like they, they, uh, my favorite line being, they say real love is a banana, sweet with a golden hue. <laughs> That's pretty good Lynch inflection there, too. Uh, anyway, what did yeah. Jack do? That, that is my recommendation. Very concise and, and very, yes, easy to see. I, I, as soon as it dropped on 
Netflix, so I was all over it, and it's a very interesting movie. Uh, Tasha, what about you? Well, I just came back from the Sundance Film Festival, which we're going to talk about in more detail over on the Patreon. And I won't say that the the experience was really heavily skewed towards uh, like weighty, thoughtful art house cinema. Like I saw a lot of the the midnight movies and like a lot of the lighter comedy movies and the the fantasy sci fi kind of stuff that was going on there because that's Polygon's audience. But it did feel like a course of cinematic vegetables. I definitely don't mean that in at all in a negative way, but like this was, there were often some like weighty, heavy themes. And I came back in the mood for a bag of cinematic junk food. One of the movies I saw at Sundance was uh, Palm Springs, the Lonely Island produced Andy Samberg starring movie that's uh, basically yet, like, yet another twist on Groundhog Day. And it's pretty great. But it it made me think about the Groundhog Day-esque movies I hadn't seen. So I came back, and the night after I got back from Sundance, my husband and I sat down to a double feature of Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You. Uh, for those not familiar, these are horror films with a pretty hefty side of comedy. Uh, the second one is maybe more meta science fiction comedy than, than horror film. Um, but in both cases, they're about a woman who... Uh, in college is murdered by a stalker and then discovers that she wakes up the the next day and it's the same day and she's living through it again and everything is repeating and the same stalker is still after her. Both of these movies like are just very self-aware about the genre of the Groundhog Day movie, the, the endlessly repeating day that you can't get out of until you meet certain conditions. And both of these movies explore the conceit in the same way that Groundhog Day does, sort of in terms of, well, what are you doing with your life? If you have to do it over and over and over again, maybe you'll start to see the flaws in your patterns, the flaws in the choices that you're making, the flaws in how you affect other people. Uh, and Happy Death Day is, it's not very scary horror. Um, there are a few horrific moments and it definitely does raise the question of what would I do in this circumstance? Uh, but it's it's a very fleet and affecting movie. It's really well assembled. It's very tight. It's well put together. Jessica Roth is the main character, uh, I think gives a, a good and, and fun and lively performance. And the filmmakers just do a, a really interesting job of like playing out the possibilities as somebody might in the situation do just kind of exploring everything you can or cannot get away with. And then happy death day to you starts off by taking in a completely different direction. I really wish that they'd stuck with that completely different direction because I think it's much more ambitious and, and lively and interesting than what they end up doing, which is just cycling back to a happy death day repeat. But both of these movies build incessantly on in-jokes and recognition humor and like building up of patterns and being creative with all of the different possibilities. <laughs> they make for a really fun double feature. Um, and a pretty like light and lively viewing experience. If you're ever like looking for basically just a way to like blow off a little steam on an evening or maybe some fun movies to watch with friends uh, and you like the Groundhog Day, like speculative, what would you do with repetition model? Happy Death Day. Happy Death Day to you. Fun movies. Yeah. I'm a fan too. I actually it occurred to me halfway through that I've actually recommended Happy Death Day <laughs> on this very podcast. Uh, and I'm with you. The second one isn't quite as good, but it's still, it goes down pretty smoothly. And uh, Jessica Roth, I, I, I think as clever as, her, as the films are and as well constructed and, and, and as, 
um, neat of an idea is it to have the star of the film be the type of character that usually gets killed off in the first act of a horror film. Uh, I think Ross' performance really sells it. It's it's funny, it's light, and she you can see that character evolve. And it's actually kind of touching too. Like the stuff with her parents is like sort of you know screen screenwriterly tacked on stuff in some ways, but but she plays it really well. So uh, she is the only reason I'm going to hold out, hold out hope for a uh, what I feel like is an otherwise ill advised remake of uh, Valley Girl that's supposed to come out later this year. Mm. But uh, uh, she's definitely someone to keep an eye on. Okay. Well, that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out February 25th and March 4th. Genevieve, what's coming up next? In 1991, Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis starred in a Criminals on the Run movie directed by Ridley Scott. That in itself would have stood out in an era when women rarely starred in action movies, much less big-budget action movies from major directors. But there was more to the script by Callie Corey than just gender-flipping a familiar genre. The film's depiction of a world so threatening to women that they're forced to take action and live outside the law made it divisive and helped start a cinematic conversation we're still having today. Contributing to that conversation now is the new Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn, a comic book movie in which, driven by heartbreak and revenge, the eponymous character becomes the center of an all-female gang seeking some combination of justice and revenge. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of The Piano, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha Robinson? I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com. You can find me occasionally writing about film and even more occasionally writing about TV there. And I'm on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Genevieve? I am the deputy TV editor at Vulture.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Keith? I'm a freelance writer. I, I write for about film and television for a bunch of places, including the aforementioned uh, uh, Vulture and Polygon, uh, but also The Ringer and Fangoria and Mel and uh, you know other places too. And you can find me on Twitter at, at KFIPS3000. Scott? You can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work in the New York Times, NPR, The Ringer, uh, Guardian, other fine publications, uh, Vulture. Uh, yeah, so I, I've been pretty busy. I'm also the uh, editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. Uh, you can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Thank you.